0: Queen Victoria and the Patriarch Isaac. (laughs) Hebrews 8, please. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Being aware that there are others teaching in this building today and they're in our hearts as well as all who are being taught. Today, redemption's penultimate end, which is the new covenant community, which is you, the new covenant community, a major theme in Hebrews chapter 8, especially in the second half, and we're going to be looking at something that the rabbis call Gezerah Shawa, And that's when, very simply, you find a word or a concept in a passage of scripture, and then you find that same word and concept in another scripture, and there's a connection, there's a correspondence, a correlation. This is how I was trained to study the word of God from very early on in my early 20s. I used to go verse to verse and follow the cross references and the chain references and that develops categories and that develops themes, that develops theology, and that's the way it goes. But Gezer Shawa is a rabbinical or a rabbi's technique of exegesis, and we're going to see a connection between Revelation 7, which we began to see last, last increment, Revelation 7, and Hebrews chapter 8. And Revelation 7 depicts or presents in an apocalyptic image, very rarely understood today are apocalyptic images and the word apocalypse itself because we fail to realize that that was sort of like the graphic novel genre of the time in which the Bible was written. It was a very popular genre and they understood the imagery of apocalyptic genre we don't today generally speaking so when you hear the word apocalypse or armageddon or all these things they have catastrophic implications because they don't people don't understand that even the language of cosmic apocalypse and of hellfire and all the rest of that is symbolic and apocalyptic of historical judgments in some cases but most of all the apocalypse is of the love of God manifested universally in Jesus Christ the lamb of God enthroned and that's an apocalypse the apocalypse of Jesus Christ that was given to John is a is an unveiling it's a stunning revelation of a lamb and of God, all on one throne, both on one throne together, sharing the throne with equal divinity, equal sovereignty, equal being and essence and rank, and equally the source of salvation of all of humanity, in fact, all of the cosmos, all of the universe. And we're going to see that today. Redemption's penultimate end, this connects us up with a lot of other messages that began with August 14th when we came back together. Face to face. Hebrews 8 1, my translation, shored up a little bit and even made briefer. Now, the sum of what we're saying is this We have an archpriest who is of such significance that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a temple servant in the holy places of the true tent, the one pitched by the Lord, not man. Please notice that word tent, which comes up again by Gezerah Shawa in Revelation chapter 7. Unlike the priests of the Aaronic order, Aaron and his sons, and those who served in the earthly tent in the tabernacle of the Exodus generation in the desert, or in the stone temple in Old Jerusalem in 1 Corinthians 9.13, Jesus is a priestly minister in the true tent, the heavenly one. When we say true tent, we don't mean as opposed to false or inauthentic tent, because the tent in the wilderness and the temple of the stone temple were not inauthentic, but they were simply referring to a greater reality, the heavenly tent. So the true tent, the heavenly one, as opposed to the earthly one, this tent is pitched or made by the Lord and not man and that's salvation itself is by the Lord and not man thank God salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end nothing to do with mankind or even with mankind's response or with any human condition whatsoever thank God for that so then The word, as we saw last week, once again, this will link us up to last week, L-E-I-T-O-U-R-G-O-S, Leiturgos, or Leiturgos, the the accent falls on the last syllable. Leiturgos, which we looked at in our last increment, was also used in the plural in Hebrews 1-7 to describe angels as God's ministers who are a flame of fire, that's a metaphor, And they are also called gusts of wind. Flames of fire and gusts of wind are very brief. They're very ephemeral things. They're very evanescent things. Whereas the comparison is to the eternal Son of God, whose throne is forever and ever. And that's the comparison. Jesus is superior to the angels, superior to Moses as mediator, superior to Aaron as priest. And superior to all and so as i've confessed before i am a christ supremacist a christ supremacist that's me i confess my christ supremacy so then leitourgos is also used in romans 13:6 for a public or a civil servant and it can have military connotations, it can have political connotations, or it can refer as here to the servants who operate in the temple. And they were operating in the temple still in the time of the writing of Hebrews and the time of the writing of Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 9.13, Paul called them those who are employed in temple service, those who will serve at the altar, speaking of the earthly temple. It was still going on because apostate Jerusalem had not recognized the once and for all and forever eternal sacrifice of the great archpriest. And so they kept offering these redundant sacrifices. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is trying to wean them from. And successful, we think, at least as we look back in history. So again, I've translated the word letogos as temple servant though minister or priestly minister is also a good translation. And again, temple servant may also be preferable because of another connection, the reference to Jesus, God's child in Isaiah 40 to 55, the great writings of what are called Deutero-Isaiah, Yahweh's servant. Jesus is identified there as Yahweh's servant, suffering servant to be exact, by whose ordeal many are justified, and Paul interpreted that many being justified in Romans 8, 5.18 as all being justified. That's a controversial thing today, but I really don't care because the only thing that stands against the truth of Jesus' universally saving significance is the zeitgeist, the spirit of this age, And the spirit of this age does not like to be slighted or challenged in any way. Believe it. It's a very active thing, dynamic thing. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and evil in high places, in heavenly places. And believe that too. But the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly or carnal or weak. They are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, including Einsteinian physics, including Freudian psychoanalysis, which has a demonic occultic overtone, including Darwinian evolution, including Marxist socialism and communism. All of these are strongholds of the zeitgeist that must be brought down and will be brought down, what we almost worship in the citadels of academia and call it science is really a scientism based on an ideology and the ideology is from invisible principalities and powers that shroud the truth and hide people in a refuge of lies. So, I thought I'd just bring that light comment as we continue. So, Temple servant is preferable. Regarding the Christological connection to servant and lamb, and I'm making all these connections, lamb of God, archpriest, the judge and the judged, the servant and the Lord, Yahweh's servant and the lamb. Regarding this Christological connection between servant and lamb, Fleming Rutledge quoted a theologian named Brevard Childs and said this, as Brevard Childs has noted, in the New Testament, the slaughtered lamb becomes a symbol of the cost to God of Israel's redemption. Indeed, the redemption of the whole world. First Peter brings together the Passover lamb with the suffering servant, and we know that from 1 Peter 1 to 24, 1 18 to 24, really. And that becomes a model for later Christian theology. The slaughtered lamb, also known as the paschal lamb in 1 Corinthians 5 7, is the symbol of the cost to God, or the price that was paid to secure our eternal redemption and the redemption of the world. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only eternally begotten son. God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but rather so that through the world, God would, through Jesus Christ rather, God would save the world. He was succeeded in that mission. It's done. And the fact that his salvation is done and completed indicates a new kind of ethic that the church is almost unfamiliar with. It's an ethic of love and an ethic of self-transcendence and an ethic of being in love with God and having the love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. This suffering servant then that is spoken of in Isaiah is now a temple servant. He continues to suffer with us as we endure, what we have to endure between the two great alterations And he has suffered for us once and for all redemptively in the cross. And so the suffering servant is the temple servant in the heavenly holy of holies right now. And throughout this time in between, the alteration of our situation from enmity to friendship with God and the alteration of our human condition in which even our bodies will undergo a somatic alteration through resurrection. We're waiting for that. This suffering servant now then is a temple servant and that which Paul refers to as a price. Lonergan also refers to as the payment of the price. The Hebrews author refers to as a sacrifice. Hebrews 9.26, I regard Hebrews 9.26 as probably the most emphatically important verse in Hebrews. Now, once in the end of the ages, which I translate as in the juncture of the ages, Christ appeared to put away sin by the offering of himself. And then Hebrews 9.28 says, having borne the sins of many, which means all, as we've shown an infinite number of times, he will appear again, as the archpriests of the Old Testament always did, this time not having to deal with sin, it's already put away, but bringing salvation to those who wait for him. We know that from Paul, those who wait for him includes the whole cosmos, the whole universe of tripartite universe, as it's called. The universe that God created is tripartite. It's three parts, even as God, the triune God who created it, is triune, The universe is tripartite, mankind. And the first man, Adam, was tripartite, spirit, soul, and body. And as such, he's a microcosm of the macrocosmic universe, which is tripartite. All this goes into, incidentally, a science or an advance in true science that is brought forth by men like Wolfgang Smith, who is successfully pulling down evolution, pulling down even Einsteinian physics, which he says the results of which are 120 magnitude wrong. That's a long way to be wrong. That's the most wrong there's ever been in any kind of scientific or even philosophical endeavor. And that's in conjunction with the denial of faith. The great irony of our time is there was something called the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment, in which the scriptures were downplayed or degraded or rejected altogether. And it's interesting and ironic to me that the Enlightenment was the biggest blockade to in- insight in the history of mankind. So you can see where we're going with some of this. And I can see that I'm only beginning to fight on some of these levels. So I, if the Lord wills, I might be around for a little bit longer. So then... And if not, you will be. So in speaking with the Lamb in the connection with the heavenly temple, consider once again John's depiction. And you don't have to go there. You can just note it and look at it on your own. It's fascinating. Revelation 7, 9. A vast multitude in which no one is able to number from every nation and tribe and people group or culture, every language, standing before the throne of God and the Lamb, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is an apocalyptic depiction, like our graphic novel depiction in our day and age, the New Covenant community. It's a depiction of the New Covenant community, which is not the end, but the penultimate end of redemption that is in Christ Jesus. James called it, a kind of first fruits of the new creation, a kind of first fruits. That's what Paul was talking about when he said he was like a priest making an offering of the Gentiles to God, that they would be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. His offering of the Gentiles means that all the people from all the nations that believed in Christ through his mission became a kind of first fruits. Of a universal harvest, and Paul has lived and died, and has presented that Gentiles that he won through the gospel, or that he induced to the allegiance of faith from all the nations. That's another thing that connects Revelation seven with Romans one five and Romans fifteen sixteen. James comes in and chimes with the chimes to say that God, by His own will, not yours not mine by his own will he begot you as a new creation as a kind of first fruits god did that not you in fact we'll look at that a little more carefully james comes into play revelation comes into play john comes into play about the gathering of all the straying children of god from all over the earth in john 11:52 etc So, a vast multitude which no one is able to number from every nation and tribe, people group, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. A depiction of the new covenant community, also known as the church, more popularly, and the penultimate end of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This community is a prolepsis, a foreshadowing, a kind of preview, a first fruits offering, if you want to go there, previewing the universal harvest of reconciled humanity and redeemed humanity. That's why it's innumerable. Innumerable is another word for entirety, wholeness, completion, a totality. The whole Christ is Jesus Christ in union with all of tripartite humanity and all the tripartite cosmos. That's the Jesus that we see. We don't just see Jesus doing miracles in Capernaum and Nazareth. We see him seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And in him, all of humanity. In him, all of creation. In him, All the cosmos. The community that we're talking about consists of all those, whether Jews or Gentiles, whom God, by his own unstoppable will, that's the word James uses, boule, B-O-U-L-E, is the unstoppable will of God. The irresistible grace of God is what Calvin called it. He got one or two things right and mostly got everything very, very wrong. I wouldn't brag about being a Calvinist. The double outcome of judgment is on the verge of a blasphemous absurdity. So the unstoppable will of God, also spoken of in Ephesians 1.11, has given new birth by the word of truth, said James, by the word of truth. Paul uses the same phrase, the word of truth, in Ephesians 1.13 and calls it the gospel of your salvation. The word of truth also known as the gospel of your salvation. The gospel of your salvation announces that you're saved. It doesn't tell you how to be saved. It announces that you're saved. When Paul told the jailer in Acts 16.31 to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and your house, he wasn't talking about what he had to do to be justified. He talked about trusting in the sovereign power of the enthroned Christ who would save him from the death that would have happened to a Roman jailer if his prisoners got loose. And so throughout the scripture, there is the singular idea that we are saved or given life by the will of God. Salvation is of the Lord. This is a tent that God pitched, not man. And that's pretty offensive to some people because they don't like the idea of unconditional grace because that gives all the glory to God, none to them. And that also takes away their desire, their ressentiment, and their desire for vengeance, and that people they don't like and think deserve it are going to go to hell. It takes away that whole fantasy of theirs and might even transform them into being Christ like someday. So, truth in the word of truth is that salvific reality that's embodied in Jesus, Ephesians 4.21, compared with John 14.6. I am the truth, Jesus said. And he spoke as the one with the name Jesus, whose name means salvation, Yahushua, Yahweh saves. You shall call this child Jesus, said the angel to Joseph, because he will save his people from their sins who's his people israel you say the gentiles you say i say all people for he is a single inclusive representative as adam was of all humankind and so jesus is the truth and that's the salvific reality that's embodied in him whose very name means salvation there is salvation in no other name under heaven In Acts 4.12. So we're talking about being begotten by the gospel. Why begotten? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. To the Jews and Greeks in Romans 1.16. And that's what Revelation 7 is all about. First we see a remnant or the election of grace with 144,000. That's the Jewish election from AD 66 to 70. In which actually to 73, but really before the great destruction of the temple. It's a representation of the fullness of Israel coming in, which is every Jew in all of history being saved. All Israel will be saved in Romans 11:26, and that's also indicated by the word pleroma in the scripture in the Greek. Pleroma, a very powerful word in the Greek, P-L-E-R-O-M-A, pleroma, and that's in Romans eleven twelve predicts the fullness of Israel coming in. That's the totality of the number of Israel. All people that are Jews descended physically from Abraham will be saved, as well as all the nations will come in. That's the fullness of the nations, play Roma. The totality of all Gentiles and the totality of all Jews equals, and we've done the math before. Play Roma of Israel, Play Roma of Gentiles equals all the Play the totality of mankind. Because it seems to write in the scriptures, it seems to be written there that as in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. Same all that died in Adam. Same all. Totality of the human race. Do the math. Do the math. Play Roma 1, Romans 11, 12. Play Roma 2, Romans 11:25 Play Roma 1 plus Play Roma 2 equals Play Roma of humanity all in Christ. We've done the math before and we'll do it again. And so the new covenant community even in this present evil age right now the church militant as it's called and rightly so because we are embattled and we are sinners as well as saints and we do sin And we have to love one another with a love that covers a multitude of sins rather than broadcasts those sins to other people. We've all sinned. We all come short of the glory of God and will keep coming short of the glory of God until the change of our bodily condition through resurrection. And so love shall cover the multitude of sins. And when a believer sins, then you that are spiritual, the Bible says, go to restore such a one. And you that are spiritual is the key. You that are spiritual restore such a one. The spiritual don't talk about it afterwards. The spiritual are not carnal, nor are they merely psychic people. They are pneumatic people, controlled by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit pours the love of God out in our hearts. To be spiritual is to have the love of God motivating us in all we do, including praying in the Holy Spirit in Jude 1.20. Now, I realize that some of the things I'm saying destroys not only what you thought before, but destroys Christianity as you thought you knew it. So that, if that happens, I can't apologize. So I won't. Let's continue. The new covenant community, even in this present evil age, even in this present evil age, and this is an evil age in Galatians 1.4, the new covenant community within it is the penultimate or the second to the last end or goal denoted by redemption. The new creation of all things in Revelation one five is the ultimate end. So new covenant community, penultimate end. New creation of all things, ultimate end. So there's both an anthropological aspect of salvation involving all of humanity and a cosmological aspect of salvation involving all the tripartite universe of which human beings are a microcosm. I know that's a lot, but I'm going to be kind of unfolding all these things. I'm giving them to you in a seed form. We'll be unfolding them. In Revelation 7, then, we have an apocalyptic depiction. First, in 7, 4 through 8, The remnant of Israel in the time between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70 in the metaphorical form of 144,000. Not a literal number, not a literal number, with apologies to the Jehovah's Witnesses. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a metaphorical form of depiction this is what is tantamount to the election according to grace in Romans eleven five and 6. And if it's grace, it's no more works. If it's works, it's no more grace. So it's an election of grace of the Jewish remnant, as it's called, or the Jewish election. That's what's depicted in Revelation 7, 4 through 8. So the 144,000, again, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel is... A, the election according to grace in Romans 11:5 and 6 which is the prolepsis of the fullness of Israel or the pleroma of Israel when all of Israel is saved in Romans 11:26 coupled with Romans 11:12 when the fullness comes in if through the fall of Israel if through the fault and the stumbling of Israel The Gentiles have come in by the millions to salvation. What shall their fullness be when they're restored totally? What shall that be but life from the dead, Paul said, meaning the universal resurrection, of course. But then you knew that. Second, in Revelation 7, 9 to 17, John presents his vision of the Gentiles. This time it's from every nation, but they're priests. So there's a universal priesthood being spoken of here. So in 7:9 7, to 17, John presents his vision of the Gentiles who had been saved through the preaching of the gospel, and God chooses the foolishness of preaching to save people. They are pictured having emerged from great tribulation. So this vast cadre from every nation, tribe, people group and language group are the prolepsis, that's the forecast or the preview of the fullness or the totality of the Gentiles. So, see what you have in 7 4 to 8? You have the prolepsis of the fullness of the Jews. And then in 7 9 to 17, you have the prolepsis of the fullness of the Gentiles. Both are forecasts of a universal harvest and a universal humanity. And so they are pictured as having emerged, in this case, from great tribulation. So they are envisaged as standing before the throne and before the Lamb in seven nine. Moreover, they are crying out with greatly amplified voice, saying, and I love this, salvation belongs to our God and... The one who sits upon the throne and the Lamb. The one who sits upon the throne and the Lamb. Some of all that we're saying so far in Hebrews is there's one seated on the throne with the majesty. There's one upon the throne and there's the Lamb. There's one upon the throne and there's the priest. The priest who offers and the Lamb who is offered are one, just as the judge who judges and the judged who is judged is one. Just as the suffering servant is, And the Lord is one, just as God made himself accountable to God as a temple servant. And God and the Lamb have joint occupancy of this throne. They have equal sovereignty, equal divinity, equal being and rank and essence. And salvation belongs to God and the Lamb. Salvation belongs to God and the Lamb. If it belonged to you and if it came from you, we'd be in trouble. There's a series of ads now that you see and you go to baseball games and you see it. It says, Jesus gets us. I'll go one further and say, Jesus has us. Jesus got us. He's got us. And that means all of us. So... On top of this, John writes in Revelation 7.15, this is where I want to take off, then I'm going to give you seven observations which came off the top of my head, off the cuff as we say, off the cuff, there it is, wrote on the cuff, and then we'll be done. They are before the throne of God, and they serve him, listen carefully to this, because here's Gezerah shawa that connects this passage, and I don't read these in commentaries, this is what I get when I wake up in the morning and say, Revelation 7. And I say, "Why well, I mentioned that. I'm teaching Hebrews 8. And the Spirit says to me, you'll see. And here it is. 7.15, they are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And the one upon the throne, ho kathemanos epitothronu, the one upon the throne will spread his tent over them, tent, Hebrews 8 to 10, Revelation seven fifteen. So these two observations, one, they, these serve him day and night in his temple. Jesus is also a temple servant. So if he's the great archpriest and this great multitude is serving in the same temple, in the tent is spread over them, then they must be a group of priests, a priesthood in union with the great archpriest. Peter just came right out and said it, you're a royal priesthood. You're a royal priesthood. Next time you want to say, you're a royal pain, say, you're a royal priest. So There's seven reasons why I find, off the top of my head, there's probably seven others at least, seven reasons why these two observations, one, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple, and the one upon the throne will spread his tent over them. There's seven reasons why I find these two observations fascinating. First, that this vast multitude cannot be numbered Suggest that they were not, there were not only a vast number of Gentiles saved during the Great Tribulation, which occurred between A.D. 66 and 73. You say, if the tribulation is past, does that mean that there won't be a great catastrophe in our future? No, it doesn't mean that. Can there be a great catastrophe in our future? Yes. A national one, yes. An international one, yes. A global one, yes. It could be. But the, what Jesus called the Great Tribulation happened already. And it culminated in really in 73 with the fall of Masada, the last Jewish holdouts in the fortress called Masada in 73. So from 66, where the Roman siege began, to 73. Seven years, Great Tribulation. This group came out of Great Tribulation. And so I used to listen to preachers that didn't know their from a hole in the ground. And they would say, nobody's going to get saved in the tribulation. It's all over. You can't get saved in the tribulation. Well, here's an uncountable number that did. Uh, so where you get off? In fact, maybe you should get off. Now then, meaning off the pulpit, of course, is what I meant. But... Uh, so, this multitude can't be numbered. It suggests that this multitude is an indicator of a universal multitude, the pleroma of the Gentiles or the nations in Romans 11.25. When the fullness of the nations comes in, when all Israel is saved and the it, when all Israel is saved is when all the nations come in to make Israel all of humanity in union with the God of Israel, who's also the Israel of God, Jesus Christ. It's all coming together. They will be added to the play Rome of Israel, Romans eleven twelve, 12 to form the entirety of humanity gathered up in Christ called the whole Christ, which is the ultimate end of redemption in the fullness of times. That's also the word pleroma. You'll find it in Ephesians 1.10. In the fullness of times. When all times are gathered together into a simultaneity. And once you understand eternity and then the realm of avaternity, which we're going to get into in the future, A-E-V-I-T-E-R-N-I-T-Y, once you understand the intermediate realm, once you understand the corporeal realm and the difference between the corporeal and the intermediate or the intelligible realm, the avaternal realm and the eternal realm, you'll understand what we're talking about here when we talk about the summing up of all times as well as the summing up of all creation in a simultaneous moment that is forever. But we don't see things that way because we are merely psychic people until God transforms us. And so, again, if you do the math, this is the first observation. The pleroma of Israel, Romans eleven, twelve, and 26, coupled with the pleroma of the nations or added to the pleroma of the nations equals all or the totality of humanity. As Romans 5.18 says, there's an absolute correspondence between all being condemned in Adam and all being justified in Christ. There is an absolutism there that you deny to your own peril. So the pleroma of the nations is coupled with the pleroma of Israel equals the totality of humanity gathered up in Christ, and that's the whole Christ which is the ultimate end of redemption. Second thing that fascinated me about this is that all of these persons who are intensely aware of their salvation, salvation is from the Lord. This is a part of the humanity that knows that salvation is from the Lord. There's a whole lot of Christians that think salvation is from me. I believed, I repented, I went down the aisle. I put my Jack Daniels and my Lucky Strikes on the altar. I gave up this, I gave up that, and for Lent, I gave up... Snickers bars, big sacrifice. And I remember giving up swearing for Lent, damn it. And it was, a, it was I thought that was a wonderful accomplishment. It lasted 13 minutes. And I was 13 years old. So then, doesn't, salvation is of the Lord, salvation is of God, salvation is of the lamb, the lamb's sacrifice. These people know this, that's what they shout. They shout it. They've become aware. The gospel of salvation that says you've been reconciled was something they believed. That's what it's all about. That's what we announce to the world. You've been reconciled. And so be reconciled to the fact that you've been reconciled. That's what happened to these people. So they recognize salvation is of, from God and the lamb and not of themselves. They serve God in his temple. This links this passage by Gezerah Shawa to Hebrews 8.2, where our great archpriest is called a temple servant himself in the holy places of the true tent, the one pitched by the Lord and not man. That all these saved persons are also temple servants suggests, therefore, this is still the second observation, that they too are priests to God in union with Jesus, the great archpriest. They have constituted as such by having been freed from their sins by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, Revelation 1, 5, and 6. Third, this is another link between Revelation and Hebrews. A whole study could be done on that that would take a few years. For Hebrews 9, 14 says, The blood of Christ, who offered himself as a spotless lamb, meaning, to God through the eternal Spirit decisively purges the conscience from dead works enabling service to the living God. This service in large part is of course priestly service. When you become an effective priest you begin to overcome evil in this evil age with good and you become in participation with the Holy Spirit you become a part of the divine solution to the problem of evil in your own historic time and can be part of a pivot That changes the course of history. Not through political activism, not through the activism of people who have been duped by a fourfold lie, and so called scientism and neo Gnosticism, which is another thing we're gonna get into soon. Neo Gnosticism is the philosophy behind scientism, incidentally. Neo Gnosticism. Gnosticism, what Paul fought in Colossians. Is now Neo Gnosticism brought to you by Carl Jung, a student of Sigmund Freud. And the philosophy and ideology behind evolution, psychoanalysis, Marxism, Freudianism, and all these isms becomes a Neo Gnosticism, which we need to topple in this, and will be done through the Word. That's what made the age that we're living in the evil age, and the present time of our living right now, is denoted by and dominated by a neo-Gnosticism. And the old way it was knocked down can be the new way that it's knocked down. So that's also coming up. Third, there's, a, again, therefore, the link is between Hebrews 9.14, the blood of Christ, who offered himself to God without spot, purges our conscience and enables us to serve the living God. That means as priests, This service, then, is in large part priestly service. There's also ambassadorial service. Moreover, in Hebrews 10.21, Jesus is said to be the archpriest over a household of priests, meaning a kingdom of priests. This agrees in turn with 1 Peter 2.5. You'll get all this in uh, written form, I hope, so that you don't have to get it all now, but you'll, I think, be able to follow these verses up yourself when we eventually get them in print. This is going to take me editing four or five more times. This, in turn, then agrees with 1 Peter 2.5, in which Simon Peter states directly that those whom he is addressing as a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ are not only a spiritual house in 2.5, but also a royal priesthood in 2.9, which chimes, in turn, with Revelation 1.5 and 6, which says that the apocalypse is from Jesus Christ, the faithful martyr or witness, the firstborn out from among the dead ones and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his own blood and made us a kingdom, all of us priests to God, even his father. To him be glory and dominion for the endless ages. Amen. Fourth, still another shawa link between Revelation 7, 15, and 8, 2, is this. And the one upon the throne will spread his tent over them. When Jesus became flesh, he tented among us. His flesh is the tent. When he spreads his tent over all of these, in the innumerable company of humanity, it means he brings in all of humanity into his humanity, where we become partakers of the divine nature while still remaining human and sharing his humanity. That's what it means, ultimately. So I'll say it again because there's only so many ways to say it until we understand it. The one upon the throne will spread his tent over them. The spreading of the tent of the enthroned one over the multitude suggests very strongly that all this multitude become partakers of the divine nature. In Jesus, the lamb on the throne who is one in being, essence, sovereignty, and divinity with God. And that Jesus has taken all of human nature into himself when he became incarnate. So he took all of human nature with him to and through the cross, into the burial and resurrection, and into the heavens where he is seated next to the Father in him, is you. For you are seated together with him. Did not the scripture say that in Ephesians 2 6. And you will be trophies of his grace through the eternal ages to come. Because it's going to take the eternal ages to come, not to purify you, like some so called universalists say, but to show God's grace to you. It'll never end. It'll never end. Not his grace toward you. And so this means that. Jesus, the lamb on the throne, has taken all of human nature into himself when he tented among us in John 1.14. When the eternal word, the eternal begotten son, became flesh, he tented or tabernacled among us, says John 1.14. So have this tent in which the eternal word was enshrined over this un- num- unnumbered multitude means that this multitude shares the humanity of Christ, the image of God in Second Corinthians four four, and that we are all flesh of his flesh. The great mystery of Ephesians five thirty two, which is instantiated in human marriage. Human beings are rightly described as embodied spirits. What are human beings? Embodied spirits. God is called the Father of Spirits for a reason in Hebrews 12.9. That's why when he disciplines us, we better submit to him because then we get to do a thing called live. We are all spirits that are enfleshed in what the Bible refers to more than once, metaphorically, as tents. Peter said, as long as I'm in this tent... I'm going to keep reminding you of these things so that after I'm out of this tent, you'll keep remembering them. Both Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.1 and Peter in 2 Peter 1.14 refer to the human body as a tent. So when the Lord spreads his tent over us, he's including us in his own humanity. And so, once again, the tent is referring to What God spreads over or covers the vast multitude with this uncountable number, saved by God and the Lamb to be part of the body of Christ. This, again, is the mega mystery in Ephesians 5.32, which speaks of marriage in light of the man, Christ Jesus, becoming one flesh with his bride. And that marriage of the Lamb is also a big feature in Revelation which is to consist ultimately not only the Pleroma of Israel and the Pleroma of the nations, all of humanity in all of its times, but created reality in toto will be married to the Lamb, and he will comprise all of creation in himself, all the cosmos, as well as all of humanity. When the first representative, tripartite man, triune man, spirit, soul, and body. And the first microcosm of the macrocosmos, that's Adam. Adam is tripartite, spirit, soul, and body. He was a microcosm of the whole universe, the cosmos, microcosmos. In him was included not only all of humanity, but all the universe, the tripartite universe created by God. So when he fell and sin entered into the world, Christ came and what happened then was all of humanity and all of the tripartite cosmos became united in Him. This is what it means when you see, you'll see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The heavens opened, etc. John one fifty one. This is again all in germ or kernel form. It's gonna it's gonna unfold. It's gonna bloom in future messages or in future years. So all of humanity and all of its times as well as all of the cosmos. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of all people. No, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the cosmos. He takes away that which creates corruption and what science calls entropy out of the universe and reverses the entropy to make all things new. We'll see that happen. You'll literally see that happen. And so when the first representative, tripartite man, Adam, and the first microcosm of the macrocosmos, Adam, the man, saw the woman that God made out of him, he said, this one at last, literally, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is what we're talking about when the one on the throne spreads his tent over all of humanity. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, in union with Christ. And so he goes on to say, Adam did, this one will be called woman, Hebrew ishah, because she was taken from man. Isha. Genesis two twenty three, the second all inclusive representative man and the final microcosm of the cosmos is named Jesus. He says to all of humanity, "You are flesh of my flesh. You are comprised of me." This is what 1 Corinthians twelve twelve and thirteen says in effect. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though many, constitute one body, so also is Christ. For you see, we were all baptized by one spirit into the body, whether Jews, that's represented by the 144,000 in Revelation 7, 4 to 8, or Greeks, representing the vast multitude consisting of all nations in Revelation 7, 9 to 17, whether slaves or free, the vast multitude, all were made to drink of one spirit. So he or she that is joined to the Lord is one spirit in 1 Corinthians 6:17 and she that is joined to Jesus is also one flesh with him this is what it means that the enthroned lamb spreads his tent revelation 7:15 over the vast and uncountable multitude saying to them you're part of the tent that I am you are flesh of my flesh flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone you have been made out of me a prolepsis of the universal community of humanity joined to Christ, the second and final all-inclusive representative man, also called the son of man, also called the servant of Yahweh, also called the man Christ Jesus, called the mediator of the new covenant, and even wider, the only mediator between all of God, the triune God, and all of tripartite humanity. Fifth. And we're going to rapidly close here. Fifth, the innumerable company of temple servants are before the throne of God and the Lamb, linking this passage in Revelation to Hebrews with the shared throne motif. The throne of God is also the throne of the Lamb in Revelation 22.1 and 22.3. In the fourth gospel, the Lamb is Jesus who takes away the sin of the world, the cosmos. In Hebrews, the archpriest forever, Jesus our Lord, is the Christ who appeared once at the consummation of the ages to put away sin itself by the sacrifice of himself. In Hebrews, the throne of God, the majesty, is also the throne of the great archpriest, Jesus, who in taking away the sin of the cosmos, tasted death, the wages of sin, for everybody, not some people. Not some lucky elect people. Everybody. In Hebrews 2.9. We see Jesus. Who tasted death for every man. We see him crowned with glory and honor. That's what Hebrews is all about. Giving you the vision of him with the eyes of your heart. Someday you'll see him as he is and be like him. This is the union of the cosmological or the universe wide and the anthropological aspects of the reconciliation and redemption wrought by God the Majesty and Jesus the Lamb and Archpriest. I'll say that again because it's going to be a thesis in the future. This is the union of the cosmological, that's universe wide, and anthropological, humanity wide, aspects of the reconciliation and redemption wrought by God the Majesty. And Jesus the Lamb and Archpriest. Sixth, after Revelation comes Revelation, Revelation seven comes Revelation eight. That's like my, one of my favorite songs by Mark Knopfler. It's quite obvious. The Speedway at Nazareth, he calls it. He said, After 2000 came 2001. Profound lyric. Actually, the song is wonderful though. When I got to Nazareth, I made no mistake, he said. Anyways, sixth, after Revelation 7 comes Revelation chapter 8, which, like Hebrews 8, has 13 verses just like Hebrews 8. Again, there may or may not be significance attached to this fact. When I first looked at it, I said, hey, Hebrews 8, 1 to 13. Revelation 8, 1 to 13. But I mention it merely as a point of interest, but as I thought about it more, beyond being merely a point of interest, both Revelation 8, begins with the enthroned lamb, as Hebrews 8 begins with the enthroned archpriest. Furthermore, both Hebrews 8 and Revelation 8 anticipate the momentous events that would unfold with the change of covenants that culminate in A.D. 70, which apocalyptically was the end of the universe for the Israelites. Seventh and finally... The throne of God and of the Lamb in Revelation is called the throne of grace in Hebrews 4.16. That's a wonderful connection. And that's where we get very practical because it's to the throne of grace that we resort as priests in this time in between. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you in James 4.8 is preceded by another reality. God has drawn near to you. God has drawn near to you, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you in a practical way, in a very profound way. It's to the throne of grace in Hebrews 4.16 that we resort as priests in this time in between the two great alterations so that we may take hold of mercy and find grace for timely help. I don't know about you, but I'm before that throne day and night. Day and night. because Not because I'm pious, but because I'm desperate. So that God takes our prayers seriously is indicated apocalyptically because Revelation 8.3 says that John sees in his heavenly vision an angel who has given a large quantity of incense to mingle with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar that is before the throne. That's how much God takes seriously your prayers. Effective prayers are made by the saints at the throne of grace, when the saints live not sarkic lives, which is carnal in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 4, or merely psychic lives, living in their own soulishness in 1 Corinthians two fourteen, but pneumatic or spiritual lives in 1 Corinthians two fifteen, they pray in the Holy Spirit, not just meaningless chatter. Powerful petitions made in the Holy Spirit in Jude one twenty. as priests, they represent other people, even all people, pray for all people, including those in authority, First 1 Peter, 1 Timothy 2:1 to2. and they become therefore graced participants in the divine solution to the problem of evil as it's manifested in the zeitgeist, the German word for the present evil age of their own time. Romans 12, 1 to 2, Romans 12, 19 to 21 shows your participation as priests in the solution to the problem of evil by overcoming it with good. So put Romans 12, 1 to 2 with 19 to 21 of Romans 12. So their prayers, our prayers, include expressions of praise and thanksgiving to God, supplication prayers for needs to be met intercession and prayers prayers of repentance too like psalm 51 and psalm 32 1 to 5 because the saints like all people sin and fall short of the glory of God Romans 323 thank God then for the throne of grace our provision in this time in between the alterations when we keep Falling short of the glory of God. He will finally bring us to glory. My prayer in the morning before the throne of God, Father, let me represent you today. My prayer at night, I'm sorry for failing to represent you today. That's pretty much my life, but it's, uh, it's all grace. It's all grace. Thank God for the throne of grace, our provision in this time between the alterations. When we keep falling short of the glory of God, You say, this message I preached today, I guarantee one thing's going to happen for the rest of this day, probably into tomorrow. I'm going to get beat up over it. And some being is going to buffet me all over the place and beat the hell out of me because of it. And bring back everything I said only in a different light, like people do when they want to accuse you. He said this. He said he was going to destroy that temple. We heard him. That temple right up there, he's going to blow it up. Failing to recognize he was talking about his own body, you see. but That happens to, that's why I pray for preachers and the men who are do, doing such a marvelous job in the Wednesdays until I get back here on Wednesdays. But they're doing a marvelous job and they're executing that. They know what I mean. I pray for their preparation, their presentation, and the aftermath. The aftermath is just a hell of a time usually. So if I appear to be a walking zombie in the hallway or for a day or two after every message, that's why. You fight for the message after the fact. You threw it out there. The zeitgeist doesn't like it. And so for the rest of the day, you're putting up the shield of faith. That's That's just part of it. You want to be a preacher? Probably not anymore. Okay. So because we keep falling short of the glory of God, we anticipate the time when he will finally bring us into his glory, when our archpriest appears a second time, not to deal with sin again, but to bring salvation to a waiting creation. What do we have here? Remember two theses that I brought to you in our 88 thesis. Jesus Christ is the kind of archpriest we need because he is our inclusive representative throughout the time between The radical and permanent alteration of the human and creational situation and the radical and permanent alteration of the human and creational condition coming up. And recall Thesis 72, and I will shut down with this, it is from this exalted position and in a tent constructed not by man but by God that Jesus acts and ministers as our great archpriest during this mean time that is the ongoing between the radical alteration of our situation already brought about in his death and resurrection in the Christ event in its totality and the radical alteration of the human condition that's coming and will be manifested in the general resurrection in the future bodily resurrection There will occur the full manifestation of the alteration of the human situation, which occurred in the death and the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your extraordinary attentiveness. This is one-third of what I had prepared for today, but I'm done. Thank you for your attentiveness. See you.